It's good to see you today. This morning, we're going to look at two interconnected stories from 1 Samuel. We'll be looking specifically at 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 17. We're going to read together from 1 Samuel 16. So if you will, find your place in Holy Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. And Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. And when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees. For man, what man sees is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And Jesse called Abinadab. And presented him to Samuel. And the Lord hasn't showed this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord took control of David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Thank you. You may be seated. Verse 1 of chapter 16 tells us that Saul is still the king. But it's the beginning of the end. God is sending Samuel to that Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, to anoint a new king of Israel. Samuel isn't giddy. Instead, he's grieving. God has rejected Saul, the king that he anointed, because of Saul's disobedience, because of his sin. God tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil and go. He will anoint the new king that God has chosen when he gets there. Now, horn is simply a container. Oil is olive oil, but it will represent 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the one that Samuel anoints. Samuel is not sure that he wants to go. If Saul finds out the nature of his mission, then Saul will probably try to kill him. God has a plan. Imagine that. These four words might be the best gift you get to take home today. Jot them down. Say them in your head. Write them on your heart. God has a plan. He tells Samuel, take a heifer with you to sacrifice. And now he has a second reason for going to Bethlehem in case he's stopped. I'm pretty sure if you're an older priest with a cow, you wouldn't normally look like a threat coming down the road. God's plan for the Israelites was for God to be their king. But they wanted an earthly king. If we look back to 1 Samuel 10, verse 19, God talking to the Israelites. God says, but today you have rejected your God who delivered you from all troubles and calamities. For you said, no, set up a king over us. You should take time to read this whole thing. At, at, one, point, at one point, there's a deal where if the Israelites took it, it would cause all of them to have to gouge out their right eye. It's a good read. There are battles. There are wipeouts. There's treachery. Basically, It'll never make its way to a Hallmark movie. And if Netflix picks it up, it's going to be rated M.A. For today, let's just go with the inauguration of Saul as king wasn't smooth. The first time he's being introduced at king, he's found hiding in some luggage, which is tricky because Scripture says he was a head taller than everybody else. We're going to skip a bunch of stuff that you're going to go back and read later, right? Thank you. Let's just say that the Bible depicts Saul as a study in contrast. Although he's Israel's first king, he's ultimately rejected because of his sin. Saul has a dark, fitful personality. And it doesn't help that he sandwiched in between Samuel, prophet, priest, and David, hero, successor, man after God's own heart, giant killer. Yet, Saul was king, he ascended to the throne, even in the face of the Philistine military threat. We found some Egyptian inscriptions that referred to the Philistines as the sea peoples. They originally either came from Aegean or from southern Anatolia. The sea peoples, the Philistines, they settled in different parts of Canaan. Canaan was an Egyptian province, and it seems that Egypt gave them permission to do so. So the Philistines occupied the coastal plain between Gaza and Jaffa, and they would continually move closer to the Israelite border. It's important to note that the Philistines were skilled warriors. 
They had the most advanced military equipment of their time. Their weapons were made of bronze, which was the predominant metal until about 1200 BC when iron became more increasingly available. Now, Saul is king, but don't forget, Saul is a warrior. And as a warrior and as king, he could enlist any warrior he came across in his daily journeys. So if he looked over and said, well, you're a big strapping man, come with me. You just went and joined the army. As it progressed, the war with the Philistines became more like guerrilla warfare. It's characterized by ambushes and surprise attacks against the enemy um, post. It's kind of like us, U.S. in the Revolutionary War, you know, where they, they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles and they ran through the bushes where a rabbit couldn't go. That's what they would do. Sneak around, find a group, take them out. Generally, it didn't involve significant numbers of fighters. And Gibeah, Saul only had about 600 men to fight that battle. And the Bible here only gives us brief details of this continuing war with the Philistines. But hear that it was that, a continuing war. Saul probably succeeded in driving the Philistines out of the central part of Israel, but the Philistines didn't give up. They just moved around and attacked from the south, which brings us to the story that you're most familiar with. But before we get there, some months before the famous battle in the story that you're more familiar with, God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse, father of eight boys and a couple of girls. God was sending him to anoint a son of Jesse as the new king of Israel. We saw that in verse 1, chapter 16. I have provided me a king among his sons. Samuel asked God, how can I go? If I go... Saul will kill me. If a new king is anointed while there's an old king, that's treason. Kings usually kill those people who are trying to get their job. It's kind of funny to me that Samuel is afraid. If we go back and look, he's just finished um, in Samuel 15.33. He goes all samurai on Agog, slices him up. Which comes in handy if you have a cow and you're going to do a sacrifice. But takes a sword and just goes to town on him. It was pretty brutal. And here we find Samuel shortly after that lamenting the position that Saul, was, that Saul placed himself in by refusing to honor God's wishes. And now he's afraid of what Saul could do to him. And in that famous story that we're coming to, there is a giant... Versus a regular sized person who showed no fear. And this is a king versus a prophet of God. And the prophet of God is scared to go. So get the picture in your mind. King Priestly Samuel and the cow walking down the road. Welcome to Bethlehem sign right there. The elders are at the city gate. And they see a priest walking down the road with a cow, and then they recognize him. Wait, that's not just a priest. That's 
Samuel. So when he got to the gate, they asked, do you come in peace? Are you bringing trouble? Why are you here? So he said, I not only come in peace, I came to have a sacrifice, a ceremony. I think there's a really good chance that Jesse is there. It appears that he is an elder in the city. I think he's there. I think he sees this whole thing. And I think he invited him to come and stay at his home. Now, we could read this like boom, 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 boom event. But I, I don't think it's that. I think it's there are some days interspersed here. And I think Jesse invites Samuel to his house. And he's got a couple of days at Jesse's house to look, to watch the boys, to see what they're like. Because remember, God has a plan for Samuel to anoint the new king from one of Jesse's sons. So if I were there, I would be looking, watching, trying to figure it out. If an animal were sacrificed to atone for sin, then none of the meat would be eaten. It would just be sacrificed. But if this, if this was an offering for a peace offering or for consecration, part of it got burned and part of it got eaten. Priests got to eat a lot of meat. The sacrifice would have been at a sanctuary, but the meal seems to have happened at the house of Jesse. Back in Jesse's house, all the sons are together. Well, mostly seven of the eight sons are together. So either the sheep are too important to be left alone, or he saw absolutely no reason that David should be chosen, so he just left him in the field. Jesse seems to never even considered the fact that David should be present. David's out in the field keeping watch over the flocks by night, probably by day. If we looked ahead, we could see that at least three of Jesse's sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, they're going to be in King Saul's army. And if God is going to appoint a new king, pretty sure Eliab is undoubtedly the one for the job. When Samuel saw him, he thought so too. We would have probably voted for Eliab. Eliab had firstborn status. Therefore, he had all the qualities and qualifications to become king, except for one thing, God's blessing. Where are my fellow firstborners? You're firstborn. Only child will take you to. You can be in our clan. Firstborn, only children. Raise your hand. There you go. Where it's obvious that we're the favorites, right? Well, at least we're there until the middles and the baby come along. But some of us, we keep that first best position. I'm pretty sure I'm still the favorite. My mama. Samuel would have probably anointed Eliab if it had been his job to pick the new king. But it wasn't. I think he watched him for a few days. I think he thought he was the one. And then God speaks. We find it in verse 7. He says, quit looking with just physical eyes. Sure, he looks the part. 
but he's not the one. God tells him the one I am choosing. He's solid on the outside, but he's also solid on the inside. So here's Samuel, the boys, and it's a no, 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 no. So for me, this is kind of a stumper. Did the sons know why they were possibly being anointed? Did Jesse know why the sons were possibly being anointed? Did they realize it was to be in line to be the new king? I'm not sure how much the boys knew about the consecration, the sacrifice, the meal, or being chosen. I don't even think they knew that the person being anointed was being anointed to be in line to be the new king. They could have thought it was just for a special assignment. I, I don't know. I know the Holy Spirit works differently in, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would visit someone and empower them for a job, usually for a certain amount of time. And it's different in the New Testament. In the New Testament, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So I don't know what all they knew, but I do know this. They hadn't sat down yet which means they're still waiting on the steak or the brisket. I don't, cow meat, I don't know. We just know that all seven boys had passed and none were chosen. Verse 10 says seven boys passed and none were chosen. Samuel tells Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Some of you are parents. Think about that for a minute. Consecrated means they'd had the ceremonial baths. Their boys are looking as good as they're ever going to look. And they're impressive. And we know Eliab was impressive because Samuel said, yeah, that'd be my pick. Seven of your sons passed by the priest and he says, nope, nope, nope. As a parent, you've got to hear, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And then Samuel asks you this question. Is this all the sons you have? How about that? That feels awkward. If Jesse had been staying with them for a couple of days, I think he had. Maybe he remembers seeing another one, you know, duping around. Maybe God revealed there was another one. Or maybe Samuel knew that God had a plan, and that that plan was for him to anoint a son of Jesse. And if seven boys had come through and God had not said, yes, there must be another one. It makes me ask myself, would I have asked that question? Would I have said, Jesse, is this really all the boys you have? I don't, I don't know. Would I have believed God's plan to the point that I kept going after son number seven? Would I have remained faithful? Would you? I'm not sure here if David is left out because he's the baby, the last in the pecking order, or if he's such a good shepherd, no one else could replace him, or if there were so many others, Jesse just forgot but for whatever reason, he wasn't there. In a typical 
wealthy family, a servant would have been hired to watch the sheep. And it, it seems that Jesse's family may have been fairly wealthy in a, in a more middle-class family. If there were girls, they would have drawn the job, but Jesse put David there. Later on, Eliab says, well, there's only a few sheep that he watched. So maybe it was so he could practice his harp. I started playing trumpet in middle school. I had to practice every day. I had a practice chart to check off. When my mom was home, she would say, why don't you go practice in the woods? <laughs> so I get it. David, go practice your heart. Go watch the sheep. Watching the sheep meant David had time to think. David spent a lot of time looking at sheep and looking at the glory of God's creation. Watching the sheep took a special heart, special care. It meant that you had to know the sheep. And it meant that you needed to know how to give the care and the attention to the sheep that a good shepherd would give. And while watching the sheep, you learn that you're a sheep and that God is your shepherd. And during those years, God built in David a heart that would sing about the Lord is my shepherd. Watching the sheep meant you had to put your trust in God in the midst of danger. David had lions and bears and wolves to contend with. Sheep had to be protected. In David's years of watching the sheep, they weren't waiting time. They were training time. Which means when God had a plan, the plan didn't start when he said to Samuel, go to the house of Jesse. And anoint the one that I'm going to pick as king. The plan was in play before that. The plan was in play when David started watching the sheep. David becomes a great man. He becomes a great king over Israel. And he never lost his shepherd's heart. His servant's heart. Remember when I gave you those four words? They were free. It was a gift. God has a plan Get ready, because I think we're going to see this kind of unfold two stories into one to challenge us so that we can leave differently than we came today. When Samuel discovered there was yet another son of Jesse, he waited while a messenger went to call young David from the sheep pasture. You get the picture? You can smell the steak. Or is it brisket? You're hungry. You've been there for a while. There's been a sacrifice. Now there's a meal. Everybody's gone by and said hey to the priest. Except for David, little twit. Where is he? Somebody's going to get him. It's not a comfortable wait, I don't think. I don't know how far it was or if one of the sons, probably the big one, Started saying, I sure am hungry. Samuel said, we're not going to eat until everybody gets here. I hate being late. I was in a disc golf tournament last year. Saturday's round was in clay, but I drove to Trustful. I was running late. I went to check in, and they looked and shook their head and said, no, you're supposed to be at clay. This is Trustful. So they all knew. At that point, you can't hide. It's like, oh, yeah, clay. 
So I'd get in my truck and drive over. And my group had taken off, so I'd missed three or four holes. And they give you like, they give you a gift. It's like four strokes a hole for every hole that you miss. But then when you get there, you got to walk past the other tournament leaders. And it's like, hey, y'all, sorry. Well, your group's that way. And then every group behind you knows. Everybody knows. And I got up to my group, and it was, it was just bad. David had missed the start. He didn't get to see the pass before Samuel. He's out there with the sheep. And he comes in and probably goes, hmm, food, what is this all about? It appears that if Eliab had been in the field, they just sent David to get him. I mean, that's, that's what we're really talking about here. Somebody goes and gets David. When he comes into the house, when he came into the house, Samuel knew. Samuel thought it was Eliab, right? This is different. When he walks in, Samuel knows. He knows because God says, this is the one that you're going to anoint. Samuel took that horn of oil, took off the top, poured it on David's head. And that oil ran down his head and shoulders and covered him. And it was oil, right? But it wasn't. Then Eliab ran over and hugged his youngest brother and said, I've always known God has chosen you for something special. Yeah, that's the Hallmark version. There ain't no Hallmark here. What happened was even better. Get ready. It's, it's the big part of God's plan. Verse 13. Are you ready? And the Spirit of the Lord took control of David from that day forward. It's God's plan. It's God's plan for you to allow his spirit to take control from that day forward. And then one of the brothers said, let's eat. Samuel left. I think he probably ate first. Told you it's a two-part. I don't know how or if David changed. He was oily for a few days. But this isn't like a marvel where he began shooting webs out of his wrist and wisecracking bad guys. I, I really don't even know how much time there was between the beginning part and the second part. But in verse 14 of chapter 16, we see that Saul is struggling. Saul, once anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit lifted from Saul. He is struggling. He's being tormented. And he's looking for a heart player. How about that? Just so happens somebody knows David is quite the harp player. They described him as valiant, eloquent, handsome, and get ready. And they said, and the Lord is with him. That's not just a compliment. That happened because Samuel anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is with him and he says, and the Lord is with him. If you're a follower of Christ, remember you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So when people are talking about you to others, are they saying, 
and the Lord is with him. So Saul tells Jesse to send his youngest David, who's still out watching the sheep, to come and play his harp for him. Jesse puts together a care package on a donkey, don't know the donkey's name, sends David to Saul. In music, this would have been a bridge. We'd have had a story and then a something and then the story. So this is there to tell us that some more time has gone by and now it's chapter 17. And you're gonna know almost everything in chapter 17. For the sake of time, I'm not gonna read out loud all 58 verses. You're welcome. But since you're reading chapter 16 anyway, later, how about just go ahead and jump over and read 17. Because in 17, we see that the Philistines are camped in the Valley of Elah. If we took a trip to the Valley of Elah today, we would see green rolling hills. I haven't personally seen it. But Mr. Google is pretty impressive. And I saw several pictures modern day, not from the actual battle. But if you haven't decided to check it out yet, picture in your mind two hills with a valley and a large man, a champion, standing on one of the hills, shouting at Saul's army across the valley to the other hill. There are several guesses about how tall he was. I found guesses from 6'9 to 9'9. We can safely say he was big and a champion. Hang on to that. It's going to show back up in a second. The guesses on his size are mostly based on his armor. In my mind, I like to picture Andre the Giant. You know, he was in Princess Bride. But he also fought Hulk Hogan, who took away his 15-year undefeated streak. It may not have been real. Andre, seven feet, four inches. You can picture in your mind any giant that you might have seen. History tells us there were giants. If you're older than me, you might have heard of Robert Pershing Wadlow. He died in 1940, eight feet, 11 inches tall. At that point, I'm telling everybody I'm nine feet. When guessing on the weight of his armor, it goes somewhere between 150 and 200 pounds. Anyway, I hope you get the picture. This incredibly frightening, very large man shouting a challenge to Saul's army. The challenge is simple. It's not like a survivor challenge. It's more like, I'm here. You choose a champion from your group. We'll meet in the middle, winner take all. Again, I don't know how many times this challenge was issued. 40 sounds about right. 40 days, we know. But I'm pretty sure it was made from the hilltop because nobody would have wanted to walk 40 days down into the valley, just turn around and go back up. And from the scripture, we see that every day they would get in battle formation. Get up, get some breakfast, get your war clothes on, get in formation, scream and shout, da, 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 get your flags up. They would do it, and then here comes Goliath. Hey, I got a plan. They gave the idea that they were ready to do battle. And I, I, guess it, I guess I'm okay with the mano a mano, winner take all. If you got a chance. But Goliath knew they didn't have a chance. And then he did it. 
He defied the Lord. He was mocking God's honor. It should have lit a fire under the Israelites. In verse 11, we find instead of getting fired up, Saul and his men are just getting afraid. They're just scared. They're scared of Goliath. Earlier, I mentioned that Saul was a head taller than all of the other men. He was their king. He was their champion. Goliath said, I'm a champion. You pick your champion, we'll, we'll do business. As king, he could have chosen a warrior. Saul knew the Holy Spirit had been removed because of his disobedience. And now he's just a tall man, but he's not a giant. I guess my suggestion would have been Eliab. It's found in the title, Eliab versus Goliath. I'm not saying it's a good suggestion. But if the decision was made by what seemed to be common sense, if Samuel hadn't listened to God, if God hadn't had a plan, then I think Samuel anoints Eliab. Eliab tells Saul, send me in, coach. And I don't, I don't know. I'm glad it didn't come to that. So he left Saul, his army scared on a hill, listening to Goliath defy the Lord. And we get to verse 12, and there's a little breath in the story. It's an introduction. We're introducing David again. So again, I don't know how much time has passed here. But it's reminding us that David is Jesse's son and that he is at least three of his brothers, Eliab, uh, Shanna, and uh, Abinadab, uh, were there with Saul. The older brothers were defending the homeland. And David was still watching the sheep. And then Jesse said to David, take some food to the front lines, check on your brothers, it seemed that David made this trip fairly regularly. Scripture tells us that Goliath had been calling out for 40 days. If a giant shouts a challenge for 40 days, word's going to get out. And it, it did. David asked about the bounty for defeating Goliath. Think how absurd that must have been. And they said, well, it's a pretty good deal. If you can kill a giant, you can get a lot of money enough to make you rich, the king's daughter, the, the cute one, I hope, and no taxes. Well, Eliab hears the conversation between David and whoever, and it makes him angry. Surely this little punk isn't considering taking on Goliath. You got to wonder if he thought it should be me. Eliab versus Goliath. No. Nope, not going to happen. Instead, Eliab asked, why did you come here? You can hear. Firstborns to middles and babies, you know that tone. Why are you here? What did you do with your little sheep? You just came to see the battle, didn't you? You're an arrogant little twit. See, it's not a Hallmark movie. David said, what? I'm, I'm just asking a question. I just wanted to know what was at stake. Well, this conversation is overheard. And someone went to Saul and said, hey, there's a sucker on the line. And Saul called David over and said, it's okay. David said to Saul, it's okay. Don't worry about Goliath. I'm going to go take care of him. Saul chuckled. It's not in the text. But we'd have chuckled. 
And Saul says, there is no way you can go and fight Goliath. You're just a kid. I want to stop here for a minute and revisit those four words. God has a plan. If God hadn't had a plan for David to be anointed and Saul had anointed Eliab and he decided that he could take on Goliath, it's a completely different story. David is the least likely candidate to take on Goliath. He tells Saul, you know, I, I got a lamb back once from a lion and a bear. And if I can kill a lion and a bear, Goliath shouldn't be a problem. Goliath is just an uncircumcised loudmouth who should have never defied the armies of the living God. Then, not in the text, but I think he leaned in close and said, the Lord that rescued me from that bear and from that lion, he will rescue me today. Saul said this, go and may the Lord be with you. How hard was that to come out of Saul's mouth? Saul who had been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Saul who knew what it meant to have the Lord with him. Saul looking at this young kid saying, go and may the Lord be with you. Have you ever said something to look back and said, why did I say that? It could be one of those moments. And we know that God was with him because the horn of oil representing the power of the Holy Spirit was used to anoint David, not Eliab or any other brother. I know you know the rest of the story. They tried on Saul's armor, it didn't work. He gathered five stones in a sling and he approached Goliath. And verse 41 tells us that Goliath had an armor bearer, carried a shield. And as they inch closer and closer, then he finally saw David and he says, what is this, just a kid? Good looking kid, but just a kid. So in true Goliath fashion, he asked David, what, am I a dog that you come after me with sticks? Goliath is insulted that David is the representative who decides who will become slaves to whom. He's so mad he begins to curse David by his gods. And then he calls out, come here, I'm going to feed the birds and wild beasts with you. And David calls back, you come after me with your dagger and your spear and your sword. But I come against you in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'm going to strike you down, cut off your head and let the birds eat whatever is left. Definitely not a Hallmark movie. Then David says, today the world will know that Israel has a God. That's all God ever wanted for Israel to declare. And Israel wanted a king. So they got a king, Saul. And now they're going to get another king, David. But this one understands. He didn't say Israel has a king. He didn't say, I'm going to be the king. He said, the world will know today that Israel has a God. He goes on to say this to the whole assembly. That means Saul's army, his brothers, all those people who wanted a king. The whole assembly will know that it's not by sword, it's not by spear that the, war, that the Lord wins this battle. 
It's really not Saul or Eliab or David versus Goliath. It's God reminding his people that he has a plan. And we must trust him and allow him to govern our lives because he is our king. We don't get that because we don't have a king. But he is our king. It hasn't changed. Hallelujah. So what do we do with this? We're planners. I do a lot of events. I'm pretty good at planning an event. And when I look at this story, there's a lot of things I think I would have done differently. If Samuel isn't listening to the Lord, he's doing things differently. He's picking Eliab. Number one choice. There's a tremendous difference between our plans and God's plan. I completely believe that God has a plan for your life. Samuel had to trust it was okay to keep saying no to excellent choices for the anointing to get to David. David had to trust that taking on Goliath was an extension of his relationship with God, not an opportunity to get rich or marry the cute one. My title Eliab versus Goliath is incorrect, but so is David versus Goliath. David stood out there and took on the giant. He refused to stand by and listen to a world telling him that it's okay to defy God. But it was God that won the battle. What if Eliab's hurtful words to David got him in his flesh and out of step with the Spirit of the Lord? David's strength from the Holy Spirit is gone. I want to challenge you today to, to really listen. God's Spirit wants to give you the power to accomplish God's plan for your life. David could have bowed up at, at Eliab, but instead he controlled his spirit. He answered softly, and in doing this, he was in step with the Spirit of the Lord more than ever. And Goliath was defeated right then. God has a plan for your life. This is, this is much more than an underdog story. It's only an underdog story if David doesn't have a chance. The truth is Goliath didn't have a chance. With the power of the Holy Spirit and the courage that comes from the obedience and a history of understanding God has protected me before, he will empower me today. Goliath never had a chance. As we leave today, we need to listen to that same Holy Spirit that, was, that empowered David. Maybe today you need to listen to him and declare that today is my day of salvation. Next Saturday, we have a blitz. I'm going to go door to door. For some of you, that's a giant. I'm not knocking on somebody's door. I'm not. That's, that's not me. It's too big. It ain't no bigger than Goliath. And that same powerful Holy Spirit will anoint you to knock on the door and say, hey, we heard you just moved in. We brought you a gift. Look for an opportunity to share the gospel. Be the hands and feet of Christ. Maybe you've been visiting and you're looking for a church and it's so hard to leave. Join a new church. But if today's the day and God is calling you to be here, Come do that today. Would you stand with me while we pray? Father God, I thank you.
for your word. Father, I know how difficult it is sometimes to hear your word, to hear same things that we've heard before and realize that it really is all about your plan and our obedience. Father, help us today to leave here obedient. Help us to search with all of our being your plan for our life, how you want to use us to change this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.